Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about ocean acidification. It's been a long time since we touched on this issue on Coastal Conversations, but in fact, our very first episode in January of 2015 was dedicated to understanding ocean acidification. And now, nearly seven years later, ocean acidification continues to cause problems for Maine's coastal and ocean environments. Much like carbon dioxide, or CO2, wreaks havoc on the atmosphere, when CO2 is in the ocean, it triggers a series of chemical processes that lower the pH of the water, making it more acidic. And that acidity, in turn, can cause problems for shellfish, like softshell clams. And this is, of course, a major concern here in Maine, where shellfish harvesting is an important part of our coastal economy. On our show today, we'll explore the last decade of how states and communities have been responding to ocean acidification, including here in Maine, but also with lessons learned from the West Coast. Before we get started, I wanted to give listeners a heads up that this show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. And so today, I'm really excited to have three folks on the show who can really help us understand all of the multi-dimensions of ocean acidification, which is such a complicated issue. So I'm glad we have an hour to talk about it. Um, today, we have three great guests. Our first guest is Jesse Turner, Secretariat of the Ocean Acidification Alliance, who recently guest edited a special issue of Coastal Management Journal that covers the complexities of integrating ocean acidification into coastal management. Um, hello, Jesse, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you so much, Natalie. Really glad to be here and excited for the discussion. Great. Uh, we're also joined by Aaron Strong, who's Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Hamilton College. And he was formerly a professor at the University of Maine in the School for Marine Sciences and the Climate Change Institute. So welcome back to Maine. I know you're from Maine originally, Aaron. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Natalie. It's great to be back in Maine, albeit virtually, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Great. And then our final guest is Parker Gassett, a recently uh, finished PhD student. He is a Marine Extension Associate with Maine Sea Grant Program, so my colleague at Sea Grant, where he coordinates efforts on climate resiliency at the community level. Hi, Parker. Welcome aboard. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Well, it's really great to have you guys, and why don't we go ahead and get started with having you guys um, just tell us a little bit about who you are and the scope of your work in ocean acidification. And I will say for the benefit of our listeners that uh, ocean acidification is a bit of a mouthful and it's a pretty complicated topic, um, and we'll jump into a little bit of an explanation of what that is in a few minutes. 
maybe let's start with Parker, who is local here in Maine. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Maine and recently finished a PhD program at the University of Maine at the Orno campus. And through that program, I studied ocean acidification pretty intensively with a look specifically at what can be done at the local level and what are some of the opportunities to handle and prepare for this really novel environmental change. Great, thank you, Parker. I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your PhD work. Um, and then we'll jump to Aaron. Tell us a little bit about your work in this arena. Sure, so while I grew up in Maine, my ocean acidification story actually starts out in California. Uh, I was doing my PhD at Stanford and at the time, there was a lot of information out there kind of swirling around and people were trying to figure out what to do about it. And one of the things that just kept bugging me is that everyone was talking about the big picture of the global ocean and almost no one was talking about uh, the changes that were taking place right along the coasts where the things people care about live. I mean, the shellfish that we harvest, that's where they're found. Uh, and so my colleagues and I got together and published a paper called Ocean Acidification 2.0, where we really dove into what's changing the ocean's chemistry in the places people care about. That paper kind of launched me into the ocean acidification world. And when I moved to the University of Maine in 2016, I jumped in and uh, actually got together with a couple other organizations in Maine and formed this thing called the Maine Ocean and Coastal Acidification Partnership, or MOCA. Uh, together with friends of Casco Bay and folks from the Island Institute. Uh, and that group kind of kept things going for a few years where we were trying to figure out what do we do about this problem in Maine and what can we learn about this problem at the local level. And that brought in Parker, who was at the University of Maine at the time doing his PhD. And so that's why he focused his PhD on exactly that work. Uh, since then, it's we moved in new directions, thinking about uh, what we can do at the Gulf of Maine level, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But for me, the, the story really uh, was this arc of um, let's start when we talk about big picture problems, let's start focusing on how they affect people at really local scales and what we can do about it at those scales. Great. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, I appreciate you uh, connecting the dots on how you guys are, are linked to each other, too. That's really helpful. Um, and Jesse, Jesse Turner, you are going to help us kind of understand the scope of this issue at a national scale, which I'm really excited about. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, where you are and how you're connected to this work. Sure. Thanks, Natalie. Well, I um, have the special distinction of being out here on the West Coast, uh, the soul of the group. I'm actually here in Washington state, but I'm originally from Nevada. So I'm a desert dweller and you all have made me an ocean person. Uh, and I also have the distinction of being the non-scientist in this group. Um, so hopefully showing everyone that uh, even non-scientists can engage um, and be, um, be part of the ocean acidification um, and climate ocean change discussion. Uh, but my background is really out here on the West Coast uh, really in facilitation, project management, and initiative development. And I have the special privilege of working with several West Coast governments um, really in the mid-2010s um, who were working together under something called the Pacific Coast Collaborative. And it was the states of Washington, Oregon, California, and the province of British Columbia who were organizing around uh, climate issues that they wanted to address as a region. 
And ocean acidification and hypoxia really became an important uh, topic that they added to the agenda, particularly in response to direct impacts of ocean acidification that Washington and Oregon had experienced very early in the, in the early 2000s that actually had impacts to oyster hatchery production along the West Coast. Uh, and so I've had the privilege of sort of facilitating this working group that began with West Coast states, really thinking about uh, along the lines Aaron has, has commented on, what are the coastal impacts of this larger global ocean change? Uh, and really, how can we begin to target monitoring and science and research, particularly for decision makers as they think about response strategies um, and, and many of the policy landscapes that they're already working uh, within? Uh, and so that's really where our work started here on the West Coast. And, uh, and then that grew into launching an international initiative that aimed to bring in other governments um, into thinking about what does it mean to uh, monitor for and, uh, and think about response strategies at a management level to things like uh, gl global impacts of climate change at a local level. Thank you so much, Jesse. Let, let's go ahead and jump into the science a little bit. I think it's quite likely that some of our listeners aren't exactly clear on what ocean acidification is other than just the ocean getting more and more acid. Um, but what does that mean, really? And how does that happen? So I wanted to ask either Parker or Aaron, let's do sort of a little bit of chemistry 101. What is ocean acidification and how, how does it happen? Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And I appreciate you asking that because the topic itself can be a mouthful and uh, people tend to steer away from some of the chemistry details at times. With rising atmospheric carbon dioxide, a lot of that is actually absorbed into the ocean. And that kicks off a chemical sequence that leads to more acid in the oceans themselves. And there's a number of impacts around more CO2 being absorbed into the oceans. But one that's particularly important is that it reduces the amount of this building block material that's used by calcifying organisms. And so with less availability of that calcium carbonate in the ocean, it makes it harder for a lot of the species that we know and love to survive and thrive in the coastal environment and the open ocean. And so, Jesse, you brought up hypoxia. And in the coastal environment, hypoxia, which is low oxygen in the water, is, is something that's often linked with, with ocean acidification in the coastal environment. You can almost think of like a, a healthy fish tank. A healthy fish tank has plenty of oxygen. It has all the right chemistry for everything to thrive in there. And a, a condition of low oxygen is often a result of nutrient pollution or uh, algal blooms that are kind of swamping over the coastal water. And all of that leads to a bunch of organic matter that's at the bottom of the water. And you can think of it like a compost pile it's emitting CO2 and that extra CO2 is acting just the same as the global rise of CO2 from carbon emissions. So often these two things, hypoxia, low oxygen and coastal acidification are linked because they're two sources of carbon dioxide into the water column. There's a lot of this that's also a natural process. It's not all human driven and teasing out those two different features is it's kind of one of the most exciting parts about the field. So what Parker is, is talking about here, um, I think is best understood as two sets of, of causes of problems in the coastal ocean. 
all of the human activities that put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, burning fossil fuels, deforestation, you know, the gas that you use in your car, the, the natural gas that um, burns in power plants, that all puts a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. And when it enters the water, um, it, it lowers the pH of the water and that makes it more acidic. Um, but that's not really the big concern. We can measure that change in acidity globally. And um, we've seen since pre-industrial times, a 30% increase in the acidity of the global ocean uh, because of that extra CO2 that's in the atmosphere. That's the same CO2 that we're worried about with climate change in the atmosphere. It's, it's, tra it's trapping heat and in the ocean, it's, it's lowering the pH. But you know, one chemical indicator changing in the ocean is not that big a deal. Um, it's what it does that really matters. And uh, it sets off this chain reaction that lowers that amount of available carbonate um, for shell forming organisms to form their shells. So the building blocks of shells basically dissolve when the pH drops, um, when it becomes more acidic. And, and that's the problem. Um, that's the big problem. But it's compounded in the coastal ocean by other sources of CO2, like rotting algae blooms that are triggered by uh, extra nutrient pollution. And um, that's what makes this kind of double whammy in the coastal zone a, a bigger deal. Um, but the coastal areas are really dynamic anyway. I mean, pH goes up and down quite a bit um, on a day-to-day on -day basis. You have freshwater inputs coming in that are, that are important. And seeing exactly how much of the change that's taken place is due to human activities has been the effort of a lot of scientists recently. Um, and really, uh, that's also been extended into uh, projecting into the future, kind of how bad is it going to get? So at the global level, we're absolutely certain that the oceans have become more acidic, and we're absolutely certain that they're going to become increasingly more acidic uh, with rates of change that have never been recorded before in the, in the history of the ocean. I mean, it's a massive change that humanity is, is wreaking on, on the full ocean. And in the coastal zone, we know that those same effects are, are happening. Uh, and what we're trying to understand is exactly how does that big global change that we're absolutely sure of um, really impact the organisms that we care about and that our economies rely on. And unfortunately, in the Pacific Northwest and in the Gulf of Maine, there's a couple different phenomena that make them, those areas particularly vulnerable to uh, these changes in ocean chemistry say compared to the Gulf of Mexico where you have warmer and saltier water, for example. Thank you, Aaron, that's, that, that's really helpful and Parker as well. Um, since you mentioned a little bit about the Pacific Northwest and the Gulf of Maine being, um, being more susceptible, Jesse, help us put into context how, how, what the impacts of ocean acidification are um, throughout, throughout the country and, and beyond. So, Natalie, I just wanted to share a little bit about the origins, um, both of the impacts here in Washington state along the west coast of North America that really uh, laid the groundwork for the International Alliance to Combat Ocean Acidification. So in the early 2000s, 2005 to 2008, uh, the west coast experienced some of the first observed and direct impacts of ocean acidification to oyster hatchery production here along the west coast. Uh, that occurred both in hatcheries in Washington State and in Oregon. 
Uh, and of course, that was very uh, concerning both to the industry and to state partners here in Washington. And in response to that um, observed impact, Washington State was the first state ever, uh, I think, in the in the world to convene the uh, Washington State Blue Ribbon Panel on Ocean Acidification. And it was novel at the time, uh, and, and in a lot of ways still sort of remains novel, in that it was a state response, um, and it really pulled together scientists, both federal scientists with NOAA, as well as state scientists at several of the universities, uh, tribal and First Nation governments, uh, city municipalities, as well as government entities um, and agencies across Washington. And the idea there was to really um, dive deep into these oyster hatchery losses and think about the causes and response strategies. And so the first was to mitigate CO2 emissions, the number one cause of ocean acidification, and then to think about how the state could further support and direct targeted monitoring, modeling, forecasting, and even little pilots around remediation um, opportunities to think about uh, reducing the uh, stressors and impacts of coastal acidification on some of our industry um, here in Washington state. From there, the West Coast really started to galvanize around this work and between 2013 and 2016, formed something called the West Coast Ocean Acidification and Hypoxia Science Panel. And that was really important at the time because it was a bunch of scientists and practitioners all the way from British Columbia down the California current in California. Uh, but they were really working on OA science for decision-making and for management response uh, utility. And that again was really one of those first sort of science to policy feedback loops starting to get developed at a local level around ocean acidification hypoxia. In 2015, uh, the West Coast governors, three uh, from California, Oregon, Washington, went to COP21, which was in, uh, of course, Paris, where the Paris Climate Agreement was signed. And I think that they came back from that experience feeling very animated and excited around what US states, or the term in this international community is subnational governments, what can they do at an international scale to really demonstrate their own um, emissions reductions commitments in line with Paris, but also sort of debut and lead on some of these unique resiliency building strategies that they're deploying. And that was the genesis for the Ocean Acidification Alliance, is that the governors really wanted to engage other states in the US, as well as national partners in thinking about ocean acidification, mitigation, adaptation, and resiliency building from a government perspective. Simultaneously on the East Coast, you had a lot of East Coast states, including Maine in 2013 with the uh, Maine Ocean Coastal Acidification Partnership, starting to, to build off the legislative report that was generated and think about how they could start to implement some of those recommendations. You had several other states uh, on the East and West Coast form task force commissions uh, that would examine ocean coastal acidification in their state and make recommendations for response. And so the Alliance had this great opportunity to pull together some of these states that were starting to really hone in on what ocean acidification impacts and response would mean at a state level and really start some programming around information sharing between each other about how they were thinking about policy integration, how they were working on capacity building to expand the science, monitoring research uh, for decision-making and the publication that you referenced in the intro is this um, special issue of Coastal Management Journal that we were invited to guest edit 
that really examined lessons learned and best practices across state governments thinking about how they were tackling this issue. And of course, there's a lot of great content in there for other US states, as well as local actors um, at local scales, municipalities, ports, thinking about this work, as well as international partners. Um, so that's sort of the, the broad overview of, of sort of how this all comes together and how the state, local, regional, and international really um, complement, reinforce, and can help inform each other. That was Jesse Turner, the Secretariat of the Ocean Acidification Alliance and the guest editor of a recent special issue of the Coastal Management Journal dedicated entirely to the topic of government and community response to ocean acidification impacts around the country and the world. You're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Our topic today covers how states and local communities around Maine and the nation are responding to ocean acidification. To help us understand all of this, our guests include Jesse Turner, who you just heard from the Ocean Acidification Alliance, Parker Gassett, a Marine Extension Associate with Maine Sea Grant, who coordinates efforts on climate resilience at the community level, and Aaron Strong, Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Hamilton College and formerly a professor at the University of Maine. Please note that our show today was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. So I asked our guest, Aaron Strong, to help us understand how this big global problem connects to us here on the coast of Maine. The story is such an interesting one um, because you might be thinking this is a global problem. Why do we need to have sort of each state developing its own approach? Um, and the reason is that uh, if we want to do something about the problem locally, figure out how bad it's going to be, help prepare people and educate them, expand monitoring to figure out exactly where it's going to be that bad, that has to be a state level approach. Um, and what's really great in the story about the uh, OA Alliance is that, you know, Washington did their thing, and then Maine did their thing. And as Jesse said, other states did their things. And then the Alliance said, hey, wait a minute, this is kind of a thing now, right? We should be talking to each other instead of just each, each state going off on their own and each place going off on their own. And, you know, the rest of the world needs to do this too. So it's, it's this really fascinating story of having uh, a big global problem, a few states take it on at the local level, and then uh, realize that there's a lot to learn from each other about uh, best practices for these kinds of responses. So here's, here's Maine's story. Um, in 2013, Maine formed a, a study commission uh, to look at uh, ocean acidification, ocean and coastal acidification, and explicitly look at its potential impacts on commercially important uh, shellfish in the state. And uh, that commission delivered its report in uh, 2014 and made a series of recommendations. And one of the recommendations it, it made was you know, to reduce CO2 emissions, to continue monitoring, um, and to look at ways that we might uh, figure out how to uh, alter chemistry locally so that OA isn't as bad. Um, but it, it made a recommendation that we should essentially form an, an ongoing concerted state effort to, to work on this problem. Um, at the time, the politics in Maine were such that when that went back to, back to Augusta, um, it did not move forward. So this was a sort of divergent point, whereas Washington continued its work within the aegis of the state government after its Blue Ribbon panel, 
Uh, Maine did not. Um, and in order to kind of keep that mantle going, uh, a grassroots effort formed this Maine Ocean and Coastal Acidification Partnership with, with, with the idea that our, our role was to continue to try to implement the recommendations of that commission. Um, and that was through coordinating conversations about monitoring, through continuing to uh, provide advice um, and expertise on uh, how to develop further monitoring, um, to think about how to do an education strategy around the state. Um, and for many years, this it's very main story, right? You have individuals who are working at different institutions with the university and various NGOs up and down the coast um, who just put in there as a labor of love. I mean, we weren't paid for it, um, weren't compensated for it, but uh, it was important in this story to make sure that we weren't just off on our own. And so MOCA grew and got several key legislators involved. Um, uh, and really Mick Devin and, and Lydia Bloom uh, were essential to the story of, of MOCA. They had you know, led the initial charges in the state house and then um, continued to actively participate. So some of our MOCA meetings would be in Augusta where we could work directly with the state agencies that were involved, um, particularly the Department of Environmental Protection, um, which is in charge of coastal water quality and later on the Department of Marine Resources. Uh, so in this very main story, we have educators and NGOs then partnering with state legislators and working with um, folks in the state agencies to continue the work of implementing Maine's uh, ocean acidification plan. Um, and that really ran from 2016 uh, into to 2018 when the work on, uh, that the MOCA partnership did um, could then be folded into the new initiatives that are taking place um, around climate change uh, in Maine. And Parker can uh, continue that story about where things have gone since uh, since the MOCA partnership. Yeah, that that's great, Aaron. And you know, there's there's a couple decades of really, really great science on ocean acidification, but at the at the same time, the idea of integrating this new environmental concern into actual management strategies, that's really new. There's not a lot of established precedent for that. So the work that Jesse's been upholding through the Alliance and convening the various best practices from different states, that's kind of where we're at right now is a lot of exploration about how to integrate our current knowledge of ocean acidification into the kind of strategies that we already have working to protect coastal environments and coastal economies and communities. Natalie, I just want to add, you asked what the, what the federal landscape or sort of the national landscape of OA uh, action or research is. And uh, just wanted to make sure um, it was stated here that, you know, from the first impacts um, observed in Washington state, uh, NOAA, uh, also has an ocean acidification program that was developed around the similar time. And they started um, putting together what they call coastal acidification networks or CANs. And they have several regional CANs operating under NOAA. And the idea there is really to bring together science in one region to get a more granular understanding of what the coastal variability and drivers of ocean change are. And so the CANs have been doing an amazing job for the last decade of bringing different stakeholders together um, around, uh, around different regions. 
And the goal with the Alliance sort of as envisioned when it was launched by the West Coast states who had been dealing with this issue more concretely within their own governments was to bring more state government to the issue and to have them coordinating more concretely with some of the scientists in the region, whether it was NOAA or with other institutions, um, private academic institutions, and really to make sure that there was a feedback loop between the on the ground managers and policymakers at a state level with the practitioners that were doing the science. Sometimes that's within a state department or agency, and sometimes it's not. And so really the kind of vision or organizing principle around the OA Alliance work is to bring more governments into the decision-making feedback loop, asking them what's the data and science and information that you need for thinking about a larger management response. And so that's sort of where um, a lot of this work has started to, uh, to sort of blend where you're trying to bring more government practitioners, policymakers um, into the mix and, uh, and start to integrate this work across their policy landscapes. If I can just add on to what Jesse just said, the, the reason why the Alliance is so critical, why, why the coastal acidification networks are so critical is that complex problems don't just solve themselves, right? And more science alone isn't gonna do it. We need more science to understand the dynamics of this problem. But even if we had the best science in the world, if it wasn't connected to anything to the, to the agencies that have authorities to, to work on managing shellfish or have authorities to work on managing uh, water quality, then the best science in the world doesn't get us anywhere. And if that science isn't in the hands of people who are on the water and they can't access it, then what's the point of all of this? Because ultimately I started this story by saying, we wanna start figuring out what ocean change looks like in the place where people's livelihoods are at stake, right? But if all that science in the world doesn't somehow connect to their livelihoods directly and involve them in that decision-making process, then what's the point of all of this? And I think that's what's been really great about um, the Alliance. That's what's been really great about the work on the ground in Maine with the MOCA partnership. And since then is that it's really taken in that idea that we need to be connecting scientists with decision-makers and communities all the time. And those conversations have to be working um, and with industry members uh, that that conversation has to be operating if we're gonna solve any of these complex wicked environmental problems like ocean acidification. As the non-scientists in the room, when I continue to be the project manager of the OA Alliance, the whole goal for launching the Alliance was to say, we wanna be action oriented, you know? And, and to some extent we, we don't know everything, but we know enough to start taking actions and what are those actions gonna be and how do we prioritize them? And so, um, and so I used to be in this camp where, you know, I would say, oh, we don't need more science. You know, we need, we need to be taking action. And now, um, now that I've worked with more practitioners and better started to understand uh, the issue and the complexity around coastal acidification as, as you heard Aaron and Parker um, articulate earlier, uh, when government members, you know, say to me, well, you know, what's the number one thing we should be doing? And I kind of think, well, we actually do need more science and monitoring for decision-making, uh, but it really is, you know, that we need targeted monitoring and research for decision-making. We need very specific predictive forecast models. We need tools that are in the hands of end users. That includes the fishing industry, but it also includes other, um, other partners, just as Aaron said. And so really it is, you know, I think that is really where we're trying to head with this is science for whom, science for what, and really trying to be um, specific and, uh, and prioritize what that means. Because as we all know, there's only so much money 
There's only so much focus. We've got a lot going on in this world. And so trying to, to really be as intentional with this work as possible um, to have the most impact is really, I think, where we're trying to organize around. And the reality is that ocean acidification is one of many environmental challenges. It's a part of many other complex problems. And for the communities on the water that are fishing and harvesting seafood that's affected by ocean acidification, that's just one of the things they're concerned about. For policymakers in the state and environmental regulators, OA is, is a part of myriad other concerns. And so for the OA science community to be very focused on ocean acidification, it's also on us to really broaden our scope to think about what does environmental management look like overall and how can ocean acidification be one of the priorities next to many other priorities and do all that work together and efficiently. Parker, I was wondering if, if you could help frame this in terms of the coast of Maine. What is the, what are you observing are, well, first of all, what sort of what's the impact of ocean acidification so far on the coast of Maine? What's the impact on our shellfish industry, which is such a big part of our economy? Um, so help us kind of ground this in our, in our own backyard for a second. Yeah, so if, if we think of the Gulf of Maine as one big bathtub, there's really three major faucets that are coming into this, this body of water. And we've got the Gulf Stream, which is bringing up this warm, salty ocean water that's coming from the south. Then there's water that's coming in from the north and it's cold and fresh and has less of that salt. It's relatively more acidic than the Gulf Stream. And so those two channels of water are kind of the hot and cold tap that are coming into the Gulf of Maine. But then there's our river systems and the watersheds that lead to the coast. And so it's those three primary inputs that are really affecting ocean conditions along the coast. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of dynamism from place to place as to which of those drivers is a more powerful influence. What have we seen in the state of Maine so far? We've seen some experimental evidence and studies uh, that are in the ocean water of detrimental effects of OA on a number of species, including softshell clams and oysters. And we've also seen that in some oyster hatcheries, there have been periods where the water that's coming into the hatchery is too acidic for the survival and, and health of some of the juvenile organisms. And that's a story that's being seen in many places where juvenile organisms are most sensitive. Once the oyster or the clam is fully grown, it might be able to weather a couple days of bad OA conditions or weather some environmental impacts that are problematic but not so severe that they die. But juveniles are much more sensitive. And so linking OA as one of the causes of declining wild populations of shellfish is really hard to do because there's a lot of other factors that lead to those changes as well. But that's a, a really ripe topic of investigation right now and is, is one that's had a lot of industry participation as well. One thing that that I was curious about, because you talked a little bit about temperature being a player in this. Um, and folks who have been listening to Coastal Conversations for a while have certainly heard the the often quoted statistic that the Gulf of Maine is among one of the fastest warming bodies of water on the planet. And I'm wondering if one of you can help us understand a little bit more clearly, like how that impacts 
acidification, specifically in, in the realm of the Gulf of Maine? Yeah, I'm happy to uh, tease this out. I like to think of ocean acidification as a chronic health issue in the metabolic syndrome of the ocean. The oceans as a whole are getting, um, people say, hot, sour, and breathless, right? Warmer, more acidic, and losing oxygen. And think about it like you go to the doctor, right? And you have high blood pressure. Is that going to kill you right now? Probably not. It's probably not as big a deal as more pressing health issues, but it's a chronic condition that can really affect your life later on and is part of a sort of metabolic syndrome of health issues. And that's what the ocean's going through right now. One of the interesting aspects is you remember what we said before that colder, fresher water is more vulnerable to that extra CO2 coming in, and the Gulf of Maine is getting warmer in part because of the balance of those two faucets that um, Parker was talking about. Um, and of course the oceans as a whole are getting warmer because of all that CO2 up in the atmosphere. But uh, one of the things that does mean is that the impacts of OA wouldn't be as bad um, if, <clears throat> if the water's getting warmer, but that doesn't mean the problem goes away. It doesn't mean the chemical problems sort of uh, are, are, are just gone. In fact, they might be masked for a little bit, which is, uh, which is a potential uh, concern. Um, the future projections of ocean chemistry in the Gulf of Maine are, I think, what gives me the most pause in terms of the economic impacts, more than the impacts we've seen so far. We've documented these particular impacts in, in juvenile oyster hatcheries, um, and, and some of the economic impacts that we've seen in the Pacific Northwest have been more pronounced than those in Maine so far. But the future projections, if the amount of CO2 keeps on its march uh, up into the atmosphere and we don't take action on climate change, are, are pretty scary in terms of what they could mean for uh, the ongoing health of our wild shellfish populations. And again, particularly organisms that make uh, um, calcium carbonate shells, uh, and particularly think about clams and oysters potentially scallops, those kind of shells uh, seem to be more vulnerable um, than some of the impacts on organisms that are crustaceans like, like lobsters, at least from what the science says so far. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. Today, we're talking about ocean acidification, and our guests include Aaron Strong from Hamilton College, who was just speaking, Parker Gassett from Maine Sea Grant, and Jesse Turner from the Ocean Acidification Alliance. Note again that this was a pre-recorded show, so we're not taking any calls today. Let's get back to Aaron as he tells us about how forecasting tools can be used to predict the impacts of ocean acidification and help governments and communities make decisions about how to mitigate those impacts. So I'm part of a, a project called the Ocean Acidification Thresholds Project, and my role is the stakeholder outreach lead on this. This project has two components. One is a group of scientists is working on building a forecast model. and our half of the project is figuring out how might people actually use this kind of model? Because remember when we said like, we don't just want more science just to sit there? Well, the, that idea of use-inspired science is really central to this work. We wanna create a forecast model that would meet people where they are, that would meet 
uh, folks raising oysters where they are, um, people growing mussels on ropes where they are. That would meet water quality managers working for the state or doing uh, work on, on, on water quality, meet them where they are, right? We don't wanna just produce a new model that just goes and sits there and informs more science. We wanna produce a model that informs actions, um, decision-making. So what we're working on is a, a forecast model. Um, it's pretty exciting. It would be the first of its, of its kind. Let me talk about what that means a little bit. We're pretty used to weather forecasts. Not a lot of people think about where we get weather forecasts and that they actually come from models. Um, and plenty of people like to talk about how they're wrong. Uh, but for those of you who work on the water, you might be used to marine forecasts that you're gonna have seas of two to four feet, um, that ocean temperatures are gonna be X, Y, or Z. And where do those forecasts come from? They come from what we call a physical model of the Gulf of Maine. And what it does is it takes into account what we're measuring at different buoys and stations around in the ocean, the height of the seas, the wind direction, the weather forecast, the current ocean temperatures, and then it says, okay, for the next 72 hours, kind of here's what it's going to look like out there on the water. And people use that information all the time for important economic decision making up and down our coast. But what's missing from the ocean forecast model is the biology and the chemistry, right? You have a whole lot of rain coming down the rivers as we did earlier this summer at various times. And that's a lot of fresh water suddenly hitting the ocean. What we're trying to work on is to build a forecast model that brings in that physical model and connects it to uh, the biology. So we can say, okay, given ocean temperatures, given that it's gonna be windy, given the amount of rain that came through, what is the coastal chemistry gonna look like? Is it gonna be a really dangerous acidic environment for juvenile oysters in the next uh, little bit of time? based on what we've seen in terms of salinity and fresh water and temperature, how bad is it gonna be at different water depths if you are, for instance, raising mussels? And so this is a work in progress. It's really exciting. We've been able to look backwards at 2017 and we have the model now really capturing exactly what happened in 2017. Well, because we know what happened in 2017, right? We have measurements of the chemistry from 2017. And now we're running the model and saying, okay, if we were to use the model the way it works, how well did it actually meet reality? And the answer is pretty darn well. And so from here, we're gonna work on making this into a, a forecast tool for the future. But before we do that, this past summer, we sat down with people who are uh, raising oysters with upweller systems, with people who are working on water quality monitoring and people who are raising mussels, um, uh, doing mussel aquaculture, up and down in the Gulf of Maine to talk to them and ask them, how might you use a model like this? So that's the kind of work we're doing right now. And we got some really interesting answers. Well, that's a great overview of the project that, that Aaron is working on uh, and how important that is and how applied that can be and needs to be. One great example I wanted to share from the state of Oregon. So Oregon created an OA and hypoxia coordinating council in 2018. And the idea there was to draft and implement their OA action plan through the state government with various partner uh, agencies and other entities in Oregon. And just one example of some of these sort of um, 
predictive monitoring and modeling forecasts at play, uh, the state of Oregon actually convened a fisherman's roundtable and they asked partners that exact question that Aaron was saying, you know, how, what do you need uh, in your community and what will be useful? Uh, and one of the outcomes of that fisherman's roundtable that is still ongoing is the uh, crabbers said, you know, it'd be really useful is having some predictive monitoring and modeling that's going to help identify viable locations for crabbing in different seasons. Uh, and so that is um, currently underway and has been directly created in partnership with the crabbers um, around the table at that Fisherman's Roundtable in Oregon. So that's just one great example of sort of this in practice. And then I also just wanted to, uh, to highlight this notion of really getting governments involved in this question of uh, vulnerability and biological vulnerability and impacts. NOAA, um, as, as Aaron mentioned, has commissioned, NOAA Ocean Acidification Program have actually now commissioned three regional vulnerability assessments. One that's looking at scallops uh, in the Northeast, one that's looking at um, oysters in the Mid-Atlantic, and then one that's really thinking about industry, human, social impacts um, on the West Coast. And, uh, and those are sort of where I think we're headed with governments, really trying to get them engaged and thinking about their role in creating these vulnerability assessments and how important it is to understand the biological impacts to different species, adaptive potential response to ocean and coastal change uh, and how they can help um, not just fund, but also thinking about how they can target some of that, um, some of that knowledge into their policy response. So a vulnerability assessment is, is really sort of taking a look at a particular environment or region and saying what are all the ways that it might be negatively impacted by ocean acidification. Is that right? From the Alliance perspective and, and really from NOAA's leadership as well as other state leaderships, um, that's always a great question. And it's really a question of equity at its heart, right? Vulnerability of what to whom um, is a really important question in all of this when we think about climate um, impacts and risks and vulnerabilities. And when we think about ocean and coastal acidification, we wanna think about impacts to key species and to key ecosystems. But really the second part of that is that humans rely on for fill in the blank and that is social, economic and cultural um, resources. And so that's really the type of vulnerability assessments that we're really on the forefront of teasing out. It's not just the science of, as, as Aaron and Parker have been saying, the chemical and biological impacts to species, which we still have a long way to go to understand both at scale, at species scale, but also locally, uh, what the impacts and responses of species might be and what their resilience tolerances might be. Um, and then from there to think about um, sort of applying the social science lens to that about who relies on these species for what and how do we build and bake that into these vulnerability assessments that are really emerging, but uh, the next 10 years, I think we'll be uh, continuing to um, articulate more clearly how states, industry partners, um, communities, tribal governments can um, be part of building those together. Yeah, so you might be saying, why, why do a vulnerability assessment, right? Like, do we really wanna in detail document just how bad things are getting. And, and one obvious reason for that is we live in a world of scarce resources. And if we wanna allocate our resources to help communities, we wanna allocate them to the communities that are currently or will be hardest hit. Um, and so a vulnerability assessment approach helps provide that information of where to allocate those resources and attention, 
where it's most needed. And that's why I think it's so essential. Um, the way I like to think about it is we have these changes in ocean chemistry. That's the, that's the sort of hazard, right? Like that's the problem. But the reason people care about those changes is because of the impacts that those changes have, right? What's kind of getting hurt by it and in what ways? I mean, we were talking about some of the finer points about scallops and lobsters and, and things like that before and some of the ongoing science there. And, and, and so a community is going to be more vulnerable to ocean acidification if it's in one of these hot spots with colder, fresher water, right? The chemistry changes are worse. And then if it has one of the species that is particularly vulnerable because the impacts on those species are bad. And then if it has communities that rely heavily on that species, right? So if you have that kind of physical chemistry dimension, that biological dimension and that social dimension where those overlap the greatest, those are the regions and the particular communities that are most vulnerable to ocean acidification. That's what these regional vulnerability assessments are really allowing us to assess. Yeah, this is super interesting. I wanted to ask Parker if you could help us put this work into the context of um, Maine's climate initiative um, and the work of the Maine Climate Council and and maybe share a little bit about sort of the status of that work um, and our and our action plan now in Maine under the direction of Governor Mills. Where does ocean acidification fit into our climate change action plan? Yeah, so the Maine Climate Council is an inaugural group that is doing amazing work right now to prepare really the scope of, of how Maine independently can be involved in its own climate action. And so the Climate Council itself is looking at emissions reductions throughout the state and also looking at, you know, a broad sweeping range of issues that relate to climate change and what's kind of coming down the pike for Mainers and in our communities. And OA is a big part of the Climate Council's strategy for marine and coastal initiatives. Of course, as we've described, you know, it's, it's really essential that OA be linked with other environmental phenomena and that it's integrated with other aspects of coastal and marine health. Um, and the Climate Council really has built upon the OA commission that Maine had back in 2014, 2015, has kind of advanced some of those goals and is now working to integrate some of that OA perspective into a, a broad range of other activities. And a big part of this, as we've discussed already, is we do need information on what the actual OA conditions are across you know, a huge gradient of Maine's coastline. We have 3,600 miles of coastline, including the islands in Maine, and conditions of OA vary. And in order to get accurate assessments of what OA is actually looking like in each of these water bodies, it's a lot of effort. So I think what's emerging through the Maine Climate Council right now is a really fantastic determination for that monitoring and research to be carried out. And that's gonna be done through partnerships. Our state agencies are already doing a lot and it's fantastic work, but the challenges of climate change kind of demand new and creative ways of linking various efforts throughout the state to get those assessments to areas that are otherwise unstudied, and to have an accurate sense of where impacts are actually happening. Can I just add, Natalie, how important Governor Mills' leadership on climate action and really the state of Maine's integration of this ocean coastal work into the Maine Won't Wait Climate Action Plan 
is so critical. Uh, I think oftentimes in this work, you've got sort of the ocean people and the climate people. And usually those two uh, you know, silos don't really communicate or talk to each other. And that's true in a lot of different governments um, you know, across the, the country, but also internationally. And, uh, and the beauty of sort of Maine's integrated approach to this is that you know, our message is really, if you're a state and you have a climate mitigation adaptation and, or resiliency strategy that you're organizing climate impacts, vulnerability assessment and response around, and you're a coastal state and you are not incorporating ocean and coastal change into that larger picture, you're really missing something. And, uh, and Maine is really on the forefront of that type of integration. That's great. Thank you. Um, it's interesting to hear your assessment from outside of Maine reflecting how useful the process that's happened in Maine is um, as, as a leadership model for other places. That's, that's very cool. I wanted to ask you guys to kind of wind down with um, using your crystal ball and, and forecast uh, about 10 years down the line. What do you think that the ocean acidification conversation is going to be about in 10 years? What's going to be, where, where are we going to be, you know, because we've, we've looked a little bit back five, 10 years ago, um, and how far we've come. What, what do you see coming down the pike? Um, I think it's really integration is the word I keep coming back uh, to, which is that we really want ocean and coastal change to be fully integrated across climate policy, priority, financing. Um, and that takes a lot of different shapes, I think. Um, but from our perspective, that's really where we're trying to head is that every time we think about an international uh, climate framework like the UNFCCC, which is hosting its COP26 meeting um, potentially coming up here um, at the end of the year in Glasgow, is that we want everybody, whether you uh, live in a coastal community or not, to understand the role that ocean plays in our climate regulation and understand the impacts that the ocean has been taking on uh, for you know, the last uh, several decades, uh, several hundred years, and, uh, and really making sure that that is part of the discussion and not apart from this larger climate discussion. So that's, that's my perspective from the OA Alliance is that um, policy priority and funding financing of ocean coastal uh, acidification work is sort of baked into the climate climate picture. What I think you're going to see a lot more of, you're going to see scientific studies coming out that where we're starting to figure out some of the effects ocean acidification is having not just on shell forming organisms, but on other ecosystem processes and ecological functioning. There's been some early work on fish uh, sensory organs and their ability to, to sense their environments. And then, of course, in Washington state, uh, salmon populations rely heavily on shell-forming organisms called pteropods that they need to eat. So you're going to see a lot more kind of interesting uh, and scary impacts on whole ecosystem functioning coming. But you'll also see a lot of really exciting science coming on things like local-scale remediation. Can we actually uh, grow and restore seagrasses in places where we also have important shell fisheries um, so that we can actually have these sort of refugia from uh, coastal acidification. So you're going to see a lot of engineers getting together with uh, ecosystem scientists and uh, sort of new partnerships emerge in science around these kind of ideas that maybe we can do something about the problem locally in particular areas. I think the other thing we're going to find out in the next five to 10 years is how seriously global climate action is being taken.
I don't think that we're going to cut our emissions by roughly half by 2030, um, which is what's projected as being necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change. But I think we're going to start to bend the curve, right? And so we're gonna, we're gonna need to ask the question, where are we headed in the next 30 to 40 years? And I think we'll know a lot more about where we're headed in the next 30 or 40 years, 10 years from now. And that will give us a lot of information about what we need to know to address the problems of the latter half of the 21st century. We're better than business as usual. We're starting to bend the curve. There's a lot of signs of optimism and hope out there. And I think that those apply to the ocean acidification problem, just like they apply to the climate problem. Thank you, Aaron. Parker, we're gonna give you the last word. Thanks, Natalie. There's kind of a new mindset, which is more and more appreciating the variety of services that natural environments provide for society and really thinking about working with nature to solve some of our big challenges. So when states and individual counties are really worried about sea level rise, we're starting to have conversations about what do those environmental buffers to storms look like? What does the intertidal zone look like at the mangrove forests? And what kind of coastal environmental protections are not only good for the environment, but really good for our society. And in this case, protect us from storms of sea level rise. And so I think for ocean acidification, we're gonna have a lot of creative thinking like that, that integrates the concern with other needs and developments along the coast. So I think there's gonna be a lot more work to help shellfish populations in the coastal environment, to do more restoration activities, to link the shellfish harvesting industry with restoration activities, and in general, try to do these things that boost the functioning of coastal ecosystems in a way that allows nature in some ways to take care of itself. And while we do work to reduce emissions, we're also helping nature to respond in its own way, which is dynamic and evolving and, and has elements that are resilient in and of itself. So I think that prioritizing space for nature to for itself to handle some of these problems will be a new way of thinking when we think about coastal management. That's great. Thank you so much, Parker. Thank you to all three of our guests today. Uh, we were just listening there to Parker Gassett, who is with Maine Sea Grant, where he's coordinating efforts on climate resilience at the community level. And right before Parker, we heard from Aaron Strong, who's Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Hamilton College. And before Aaron, we heard from Jesse Turner, who is with the Ocean Acidification Alliance. Thank you so much to all three of you. It's been really great to talk with you about this really complicated topic. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend. <laughs>